Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Uh, We have a lot to get to today, uh, including updates on uh, Trump feud with the press, uh, the wildfires in or forest fires in uh, in California. We have some experts joining. Talk to us about that later on in the show. Um, More on the Weinstein fallout, the debacle from all that. But first, you got President Trump live right now in Pennsylvania. Middletown, Pennsylvania, uh, talking about taxes. We'll just go to that for a moment, and I'll give you a summary of what he said. Go for it. Ready? Made in America. Made in the USA. Seems to be. Hi, Jeffrey. Seems the great Jeffrey Lord. He was on fake news, CNN, for a long time. He was CNN one of my covering his few right sources now, of truth. Thank you, Jeffrey, for being here. That's a great honor. Thank you. So the president's been talking about Good man. But giving so many countries a tremendous advantage over us, If you look at China at 15 percent and Mexico, all of these countries had a lower tax rate than the United States. You can't compete that way. It is time to end this unfair disadvantage and to give American companies and workers the level playing field they so richly deserve. Finally, Trump is uh, Trump is rallying support for tax reform here. And uh, I, I was listening to the speech before we went on air, and he got uh, he got the the rates. He talked talked about the rates, zero, twelve, twenty five, thirty five individual rates. Uh, also under Trump's preferred tax plan, you'd have twelve thousand dollars of un of completely untaxed money at the federal level. Uh, your first twelve thousand dollars, and then if you were filing jointly as a married couple, twenty four thousand dollars tax free. He said. Also, the corporate tax rate would be coming down from uh, what occurred. I think it's 25 or 30 percent. I forget. 30. Is it 30 percent? I think it's 30 percent. Down to 20. They had said 15, but I think 20 is now what they're going to be pushing for. From seven brackets in the individual income tax to three and uh, getting rid of the estate tax, which particularly will help out uh, some family businesses and uh, taxes can be done on a single piece of paper, he says. I mean, th- those are the broad strokes. And then you get all of the encouraging signs to the market, and, and this will increase hiring and, and put more money in your pocket. For middle-class families, uh, the Trump administration is saying it should be a few thousand dollars, I think, in the uh, few thousand dollars of 
extra income in uh, their pocket. Bigger paychecks, he is saying. Nothing gets done in America without the hardworking men and women of the trucking industry. Do we agree with that? Thank you so much. Job you do. When your trucks are moving, America is growing. You agree? That is why my administration has taken historic steps to remove the barriers that have slowed you down. America first means putting American truckers first. Okay, uh, that's actually not the clip that I meant to play for you all. Sorry, we're, we're taking this uh, quickly because it's just the speech has just been underway. So can we get to lower taxes for everybody? There we go. Thank you, sir. We have stopped or eliminated more regulations in the last eight months than any president has done during an entire term. It's not even close. You get the idea. This is a... Uh, a, a rally of of what Trump has been saying for a long time. He's he's pushing for uh, there to be condensed rates and like tax reform could be a really good thing. I think it would be a really good thing if they get it through. And and at least we can take some solace in the fact that this is policy. This would matter to you. Would matter to me. I would love to have a little more money in my pocket. I think taxes are. Way too high. I wish we could also get rid of the notion of a middle class and just start talking about people that are earning a living. <laughs> Forget about trying to put a, you know, create these three generalized, you know, conceptions of, of what of where people fall in the economic and socioeconomic spectrum. You know, there's now uh, what is it? Lower income, which is a would used to be referred to as people who are poor. But, you know, they'll refer to lower income or low income individuals or there's all these different now uh, euphemisms. And then you have middle class, which politicians love. They won't say you wouldn't say lower class because people are not themselves. You know, it's not that they are lower class. It's just lower income. Right. But they're not really sure on how we're supposed to refer to what would be that that bottom segment. That's always changing. You have middle class, which is just what politicians love. Then you have the upper class, which also you'll notice is not really referred to anymore. Now it's high earners or or the 1%. Depends on how Marxist and socialist sounding you want to be. But high earners is the more generally accepted term. But I I don't like this. There's something that feels, to me, a little class warfare-like, a a little Marxist in in tone about breaking us all down into, you know, classes of of income. Uh, I think they're just... You could say that there are people who are there are people who are struggling. There are people who are earning a living, and there are people who don't have to worry that much about money. That that's a better way to put it. So because you know earning X amount of dollars in Topeka is very different from earning X amount of dollars in San Francisco is very different from earning the same, and you know you go all across the country, right? So it, it's just not as as cut and dry as there's a number, and the number makes you fall into one class or another. Media loves this, though, because by creating this kind of uh, economic balkanization, right, by separating us based on how much money uh, we make here or there, they are able to play the class warfare game, which is one of the favorite. I mean, after trying to capitalize on identity politics and racial uh, racial tension and racial issues, that's central to Democrats. 
then maybe it's sexism and and xenophobia and but class warfare is right right in the same general area of uh, centrality to the Democratic Party's message. They they love the class warfare game. So Trump is saying he's going to be giving, and he, he's turning this, he's flipping the script on them here because he's telling all people that are earning money across the country, you're going to get to keep more of your money. And I think that's a great thing. Uh, we'll see if it happens with Congress. You're going to have some people in Congress, and, and this is going to get very, uh, very irritating, at least for me, very quickly. You're going to have some members of Congress that say, well, you can't cut taxes because that's going to be expensive. As if projected tax receipts, meaning the amount of money that the government is planning to take from all of us is a sunk cost, right? That That's money that's already, it's almost like it's already been spent. It's already been promised. No, no, I, I don't see it that way. I don't see my money and I don't see my private property as, as merely what the government deigns to let me keep. And I'm sure you have the same, uh, uh, same view. Democrats take a very different position on this. You're supposed to be thankful for whatever the government lets you have, because really it's the government's money. It's not yours. It's almost as though the federal government is giving you an allowance, right? Whatever you earn, the government takes its cut and then it kicks a little to you. Well, I think the way it should work is that you make money and then you kick a little bit to the government and it should be straightforward. It should be obvious and it should not be very much. (laughs) That's that's what I think. I'm not going to uh, bet the proverbial farm that this is going to work before the end of the year. We'll have to see. The Republican Congress is, I think, becoming uh, a little too comfortable with their inefficiency and their uh, ineptitude. They figure that they can just get all huffy and point the finger at Trump. But I think Trump is on much more solid ground than they are when looking at the issue of failure to implement the agenda thus far. I think Congress is going to get a lot more blame for that than Trump is. Now, uh, taxes are not an issue that gets people uh, necessarily to click on the website, uh, turn on the radio or flip on the TV, but it's important. Could have big impact on the economy, especially dropping the corporate tax rate when it comes to employment and hiring, uh, because what do what do companies tend to do when they have more money on the balance sheet? They expand, they hire, they do more with it. Um, I, these are all great things that Trump is talking about with the tax code. I can't assess how good it is yet because we don't even know what the Congress is going to put forward as a bill. Right? This is just Trump making the case. And you're going to have some holdouts in Congress. You're going to have some conservatives who say that, that you can't run up the deficit or you can't run up the debt. Or, or both. And uh, that's another part of the conversation that remains that remains to be heard, which is when do we deal with the fact that we're 20 trillion dollars in debt or do we not? Do we just keep on running this thing out? I mean, I, I remember not long ago there was this whole movement. Remember the Tea Party? People who were concerned about government spending. That's only gotten worse. We've done nothing to deal with that problem. And that was a major mobilization of the earning class of Americans, you and me, who had just had enough of what the government was doing and its spending practices. And we should address this. We should change it. But it's going to require tackling our expenditures. The federal government is going to require some tough conversations. 
This is where the the Trump message and the populism, I, I don't know how this gets translated necessarily into reality. We all want lower taxes. Great. Or at least you and I want. I don't I don't know. Not everybody wants lower. People brag about how they wish they could pay. Rich people brag about how they wish they could pay more in taxes. And then you point out to them that they can and then they don't. <laughs> this happens all the time. Sure. You can send the IRS. There's a thing on your tax forms. You can send the IRS as much money as you want. Go for it. But we can't have the same uh, the same spending on entitlements with no reforms to entitlements and more spending on the military and possibly a trillion dollars of infrastructure spending. It depends on how that actually plays out with Trump. Without wondering at what point the system starts to break apart, at what point the debt becomes crushing, when can we no longer ignore it? I think if you had told people a decade ago that we'd be at $20 trillion, they'd say that we'd already be near the panic button. But nope. Right now, the market is sky The stock market is sky high. Uh, unemployment is super low. And people feel good about the economy. People are being told, at least, that it's good. There's still a lot that needs to be done. And Trump speaks to those issues of trade and manufacturing and and real wages and how they need to be rising. And, you know, I don't think there's nearly enough time spent on uh, what quality of life is for the dollar spent today versus what it was uh, years ago. But this is a case that has to be made as well, or else this is going to get lost. This is going to shatter on the shoals of Congress's intransigence and ineptitude and uh, self-interest and stupidity. So it's a. I, I like the message from Trump. I like what he's saying on all this, but has yet to actually happen. Meanwhile, the media wants to talk about how Trump wants to make thousands more, uh, thousands of more nukes, and people are saying he's a moron. I mean, it's incredible the stuff with NBC today. You can't make this up. Oh, actually, you can because I think they did. I don't. I don't buy this. I, I will get into this after the break. This is the much of the morning news cycle today was spent on Trump saying something. I just, I don't believe it. They, the media overplays their hand with this stuff. They are willing to uh, run with stories that are so anti-Trump that you just can't, you can't believe it. It's literally unbelievable. And Trump called them out for it. But then he said something about pulling their license and, or, you know, when should we, and I, you know, we gotta, look, the president's allowed to say it, but I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not in favor of that. I don't. We'll get into this. I need to give you the details. Uh, 844-900-BUCK. 844-900-2825. We will be talking about those uh, those forest fires out in California. We'll be getting into the latest on Weinstein. I've got a story out of Poland having to do with Islamophobia that I would like to discuss with you in a bit. We've got a lot of show. Stay with me. With your help and your voice... We will bring back our jobs. We will bring back our wealth. And for every citizen across this land, we will bring back our great American dreams. This is a great and proud state. I am so honored to be with you tonight. Thank you. God bless you. And God bless the United States of America. Thank you very much. All right, there you have it. The president giving a a rousing address on taxes, which is not easy to do. 
but he, he he sells this well. He does a good job of explaining to everybody listening how this will benefit them, because I think there are concerns that tax reform is just a giveaway to the donor class, to the Beltway bandits, to the D.C., uh, well, to those who write checks to the D.C. political class. So when he talks about more money in the pockets of the, he says middle class, and so it's fine, we'll say middle class, but... I like to say the earning class, those who are earning a living, uh, when he says more money in their pockets, uh, that resonates. When he says doing taxes on a single piece of paper, that really resonates. I I hate tax time every year. I mean, the fact that I I have to pay quarterly because I do some work that's not, you know, that's as a contractor. And it's just I absolutely despise dealing with the IRS and the whole thing. And I really resent it. I, I do. And I'm sure a lot of you do, too. He, oh, we spoke about uh, regulations. He spoke about regulations as well. Uh, do we have that? Do we have the sound on regulations? Um, uh, so we, we were literally getting, I mean, the, uh, the speech was going on right as we came on air here. So we try to try to pull it and record and then do a little bit of analysis on the fly. Um, so, all right, you know what? Forget it. He talked about regulations. Don't, don't worry about the audio. Whatever. And, you know, I'll 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 do it live here with the uh, regulations. What? Oh, that's when we aired already. OK, well, I'm glad we we've we've had a little bit of a mis we've had a miscommunication here in the booth with where we are on our clips. So instead of calling out, I've got the wrong clips here labeled. Instead of doing that, we're just going to go with he says there's going to be a less regulatory nonsense to deal with. So that's good. This is all helpful for the economy. There's a lot going on here that I think if it gets done. Because the Republicans need points on the board. If this happens, good things. Good things. Uh, if it doesn't, what do we go into the winter I mean, by you know February, January, February of 2018? If there's no tax reform, I, I guess we're just going to keep on banging our heads against the wall and hoping that something different happens. And I don't know. This Republican kind. Look, it took a while for Obamacare to get through when Obama had the House and the Senate. I know. And so big things can take time. It's still early in the game. But tax reform? I mean, this this really shouldn't be. This shouldn't be so. This, is, this should be very doable on the list. Um, I, there's an MMA, <laughs> MMA, sorry, an M&M, not MMA. There's an M&M uh, rap that was on the in the BET Awards last night that I might get into here in a few minutes just because. And then we'll talk about the uh, the Weinstein story is one of the most incredible uh, bombshells to drop on the Democrat Party and, and its fortunes here for a, uh, quite a while. You know, since since Hillary lost the election, I think this may be the single story that uh, is sending the most shockwaves, certainly through Democrat Hollywood. Um, so I want to get into some of the continued fallout from that and more that we've learned about it. And then uh, later on the show, we'll talk about what's going on with these out-of-control fires in California. So much more. Uh, stay with me. It's frankly disgusting the way the press is able to write whatever they want to write. And people should look into it. No, I want to have uh, absolutely perfectly maintained, which we are in the process of doing, uh, nuclear force. But when they said, I want 10 times what we have right now, uh, it's totally unnecessary, believe me. Because I know I know what we have right now. <laughs> so here's this story. I mean, 
this is this is amazing. Uh, you had NBC News reporting that Trump uh, wanted to make ten times as many nuclear weapons as the, currently sit in the U.S. arsenal, which would be incredibly expensive and uh, not necessary <laughs> on a whole bunch of levels. And I believe that the the connection was that that is the conversation or that when Trump said that it was in reference to that. That's why uh, Rex Tillerson, a secretary of state, allegedly said that Trump was a moron. I mean, this is just all this uh, gossip posing as as news that's out there right now. And I just don't I don't buy that. There are a lot of things that you could tell me Trump said. And I'd be like, yeah, I, I believe I would believe that he said that. I do not believe that Trump was seriously uh, putting forward that he wants 10 times as many nuclear weapons as we currently have. So how NBC or why NBC would feel compelled to report that is a is a question that, well, we all have our ideas, right? But there's certainly there's certainly some pattern here of anti-Trump hatred that comes to mind as to what the justification what the rationale for that may be from uh, NBC's point of view. Uh, but Trump is saying that that's all crap. Then he went on to talk about maybe pulling their license. Like, I think he's just trolling. People get, And I have some friends who are really smart, uh, you know, honest and, and well-intentioned conservatives who when Trump says maybe we should pull NBC's or maybe we should consider pulling NBC's license for fake news, how, however it was that he... Uh, he stated it. I'll see if I can find the exact verbiage here in a second. But it was something along those lines. He's not serious. And, you know, should the president be saying that? Eh, doesn't really bother me. <laughs> I find the news. I find the news media so grotesque. This, this is part of the problem that they have is that there's very little, very little criticism of them when it comes to their dishonesty, their partisanship. There's very little that's going to be too much for me. You know, I'm. Yeah, I'm not going to be okay with the president violate, actually violating the First Amendment and, and trying to shut down a news organization or something, of course. But you know, saying stuff like this just to get them a little uh, a little riled up, a little little on edge, I, I know I find it entertaining. Maybe I should be more bothered by this than I am as somebody who works in the media. But I remember what it was like during the Obama years. I knew what it was like when you had a Democrat administration that could count on the entirety of the media with a, with a few exceptions that matter. Basically, talk radio, Fox News, a couple of websites. That's it. You know, uh, could count on everyone except for those individuals and groups and, uh, and news organizations to come to the president's aid all the time and to attack his enemies all the time. And that left a really bad taste uh, in our... In our mouths, that that left us with a sense that this is a, a fixed a fixed system and a rigged game, and it is with the media. So we see this with Trump today, and while he wa- while he's giving a speech on taxes, and that should be a focus of the government. You know, I, I don't think the government has to be a place where there's a lot of compelling oratory day to day. I don't really care about the inner machinations of what's going on in the House and the Senate. I just want them to do stuff that's good. I would like them to enact policies that are respectful of freedom, of the limitations of government as established by the Constitution, and that respect private property and 
individual enterprise and individual rights. That would be great. I don't really need them to be uh, talking about culture war issues in D.C. We can handle most of that in the media. So I would rather that something happens on tax reform than when we continue to just spin in circles about, say, I don't know, the NFL, for example. That's we've done that a lot lately. There's been a lot of talk about it. And uh, oh, well, look at this. You have Fox updating us on the Menendez corruption trial, which I will note, I have not seen, and this is just per, I'm speaking from the eye perspective, I, I have not seen any coverage other than Fox of Menendez stuff. Now, I'm sure that ESPN, I mean, not ESPN, gosh, Buck, I'm sure that CNN, although ESPN would like to cover things like the Menendez trial, it seems, these days, uh, I'm sure that CNN's done it here or there, MSNBC's done it here or there, but in a way that... You know, it's kind of like, eh, nothing really going, nothing really to see here, but we're just checking the box. Yeah, Menendez trial, don't worry about it. Even though, as I've been telling you, you know, he had the International Babe Transport Service going on, funded by a $90 million Medicaid scheme. You would think that there's a lot of story there, but they don't touch that. They'd rather mock the president and say that uh, he wanted 10, 10 times as many nukes. I, I do think that's fake news, and NBC can stand behind it all day. But you have two things happening that raises a lot of questions about, well, I don't know. It's really just solidifying what we already know. I mean, these aren't questions. These are questions that have been around a long time. You have a couple of things that are happening right now that go right to the heart of the problem with the Democrat media and the narrative that it is always forwarding, often through dishonest and uh, disgraceful means. You have on the one hand this story about Trump, which I just do not. And, and as I was saying to you, it, there's there are plenty of things that I've seen reported about Trump saying, especially if it's in private. I'm like, yeah, I think he probably said that. Sometimes rather colorful things. Yeah. Sometimes things that I don't even think I could repeat to you on air. Keep in mind that uh, even Dick Cheney, who was a very buttoned up fellow. Uh, was known to use colorful, salty language on occasion. Just ask Senator Pat Leahy of uh, Vermont. But Dick Cheney, Donald Trump, there are some limits to what I could expect them to say, and I just don't believe that Trump was saying 10 times the nuke. So why would NBC report that? Because it hurts Trump. Even if people don't believe it, nobody can disprove it. And from NBC's perspective, damaging information about this presidency that isn't really newsworthy, but does show your core audience that you're part of the hashtag resistance. You go for that. You do that. That's worthwhile. And I think that's the that's the way that they line this thing up. That's how they did. So you've got that. And then on the other side of what they do not want to report and do not want to talk about. This takes us to this Weinstein story, which I am I knew that when this first broke, it was going to get a lot worse because the moment you have somebody coming out and uh, w- one of the uh, young women, women who's a reporter uh, is friends with many people that I know from the business, and they all say that, you know, she's, they absolutely 100% know that she's telling the truth. They know her personally and, uh, and that was one of the earliest stories I read about Weinstein. But just based on those details, I was like, well, this is going to get much worse. Because if he did that, this is not this is not a one-off or a two-off. This is how he operates. And there's a damage control mode right now for many people that 
were using their uh, connection to Harvey Weinstein for a long time for their own purposes. Mostly because in a lot of those cases, we're talking about individuals, whether politicians or uh, media Hollywood stars. But there's news media people that are attached to Weinstein, too. Don't forget. And a lot of big PR firms, as I've been saying, and lawyers and publishers and magazine authors. I mean, this guy was really, really plugged in and was was royalty on the left. He was modern, progressive royalty. That's what Harvey Weinstein was. He's like a member of the progressive royal family. Oh, hello, sir. The royals. Oh, now we see, though, that there are people that are making a big show of how much they want nothing to do with him. And a part of this that I haven't seen discussed much is that I think there is a recognition among some very successful actors and some very successful people that relied on Weinstein in one way or another that they don't want to believe that they were created by a monster. And that's a very real thing. They don't want to believe that their success is attributable to somebody, even you know, even if they didn't know and they had nothing specific to do with this. They didn't want to believe that their success was attributable to somebody who is so uh, grotesque and dishonest and predatory. And I mean, we could go on on the adjectives here all day. I mean, it's hard to it is hard to even capture in descriptions how this individual really was and how much the media covered for him and for so long. And to this point about NBC, to bring us full circle here in our in our chat, uh, they're talking about Trump wanting 10 times as many nukes. On the one hand, Trump says fake news. Trump tweets out we need to look at their license. But then on the other side, they don't want to talk about what happened with Weinstein. They didn't want to talk about it last summer when it was posed to them, it was offered to them on a silver platter based on the reporting that I'm reading by uh, young Ronan Farrow. Now, you may recall Ronan Farrow was a, actually, no, probably none of you recall this. <laughs> let, me, let me take that back. For like a hot second, Ronan Farrow was given a show in the afternoon at MSNBC. And it was, you would, if you ever were channel surfing and you saw a guy who looked like a Looked like a high school senior had, you know, escaped from, I don't know, you know, PE class or something, and they threw him on set, and all of them, all of a sudden he's he's hosting a show, and he's like, "Hello, I'm Ronan Farrow. None of you know who I am, and none of you particularly care, but I have a TV show now." Uh, it it tanked, it bombed, it was a bad show. Uh, he wasn't ready. For, look, he wasn't ready for it. So on the one hand, there's the resentment that a lot of people in the business feel for a kid who didn't earn it. And I can say he's a kid. I think he was like 25 or 26 when he got this. Being given a TV show who has no TV experience and then just stinking up the joint. But on the other hand, you know, I kind of feel bad for him, too, because it was a disaster. And, you know, it it went exactly how anybody who knows anything would expect it to go, which is that if you have no TV skills or experience, you're going to do a bad job. And he did. But he has written this piece for The New Yorker. That I mentioned yesterday on air that specifically cites three women who claim Harvey Weinstein raped them. This is very, very serious stuff. Now these are criminal allegations. This goes beyond workplace misconduct that you get fired for. This is now in the realm of people go to prison for a long time for what Weinstein allegedly did. And MSNBC and NBC, which owns MSNBC, 
apparently didn't want to touch this. Here's an exchange on the Matt. I know, I'm about to play a Maddow clip on this show. You guys are like, really? Here's what uh, the exchange was like between Ronan Farrow and Rachel Maddow. Why did you end up reporting this story for The New Yorker and not for NBC News? Look, you would have to ask NBC and NBC executives about the details of that story. I'm not going to comment on any news organization's story that they um, you know, did or didn't run. Uh, I will say that over many years, many news organizations have circled this story and faced a great deal of pressure in doing so. Mm. And there are now reports emerging publicly about the kinds of pressure that news organizations face in this. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is real. In, In the course of this reporting, I was threatened with a lawsuit personally by Mr. Weinstein. He's saying NBC was uh, too chicken to do anything with the story. I mean, he wasn't he didn't say that, but that's actually what he's saying. Keep that in mind as we go forward here, that a major news organization that has both a cable channel as well as you know newsroom operations, news affiliates across the country was offered the the chance. And I think a lot of people would say had the obligation, the the ethical obligation to report on this maniacal predator, Harvey Weinstein, and they didn't do it. Don't tell me it's because they're afraid of lawsuit, okay? Because I don't buy it. Because they got plenty of lawyers and plenty of money. They didn't do it because they didn't want to do it. Because they didn't want to take down Weinstein because they knew that the photos would come out of Weinstein with the Obamas and Weinstein with the Clintons and Obama's daughter going to work for, there's a lot of companies in America. Obama's daughter went to intern for Harvey Weinstein. That's a level of power and clout in the Democrat Party that very few people can match, my friends, that Harvey Weinstein has. But the news organizations that are now running all these stories and now they're jumping on the bandwagon, so many of them were just, they weren't guilty of merely cowardice. They were also complicit because they didn't want to, they didn't want this to stop. They liked having this guy on their side. They liked that. The storyline was that he was just a powerful TV exec. And anyway, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. We have much more and we will be right back. Well, uh, clearly people did know that there were allegations of Harvey's behavior with women. It was an open secret in Hollywood and in media circles. And, you know, I was at an event uh, months back right after uh, President Obama left office in which he gave a speech. And the first person, I was really struck by this, the first person he went over to greet uh, on the rope line was Harvey Weinstein and and, and uh, President Obama's daughter, Malia, interned for him. And I, as a reporter, sort of knowing the rumors and the gossip, was shocked, you know, knowing what's out there that President Obama would uh, legitimize uh, Harvey Weinstein in that way. Nope, shouldn't be shocked at all. And the pretense of being shocked is is pretty preposterous because, as I was saying, Weinstein was Democrat Party royalty. He was a very, very respected, powerful man in Democrat circles, not respected because of who he was as a person, but because of what he would do for people, for politicians, for movie stars, for whomever, for authors. Well, one something you must keep in mind here is that it's not just the people in the movies. It's those who write articles. It's the often bitter and feeling overlooked journalist class that Weinstein was able to co-opt and coerce because you could be some uh, journeyman writer for whatever publication. And, you know, OK, you make that story go away on Weinstein on page six. 
He'll pick up your screenplay. He'll option your book. Now you got money. Now you got a Weinstein deal in production. You know, whether it ever gets made or not, you get to sound like you're really cool, right? Just buy people off left and right. He could buy off the very people who had an ethical obligation to report on somebody this powerful and connected doing what he was doing, which was serial predation against women in his industry with intent, with forethought. And he bought off those very people. I mean, this is the corruption here was just so widespread. And now they're all, oh, I can't believe the Obama. Yeah, please. The Obamas didn't care. Clintons didn't care. Uh, Evelyn in North Carolina on WPTI. How you doing, Evelyn? Hey, um, what's up? I want to talk about I want to talk about taxes. Yes, ma'am. And I'm right with you. I hate doing taxes. <laughs> yeah, me too. There's just too many forms, preparation, and everything. In fact, Saturday I'm going to my accountant because I I get these. Um, what do you call them? Every extensions every year, even though I'm getting a refund. So I'm going over there Saturday to do my 2016 taxes. I can't wait. And I do hope we get that short form because that would be a blessing to me. That would be a blessing oh, for all of us. Evelyn Shields high. And thank you very much for calling in. Uh, a little more, maybe we'll have a little more fun uh, going after Hollywood here for all their hypocrisy. Scott in North Carolina. Welcome to Freedom Hut, sir. Uh, hello. Hello. Hey, I'm a longtime listener. I'm all the way to the blaze. And, um, but uh, the issue I'm having with all this is um, not so much that um, this guy has done right or wrong, um, but that you know there hasn't been consideration in, in other things that... For example, um, you know, if you use, if, if you accept what this guy is telling you to um, to do to advance your career, you're just as guilty. So some of these high-profile actors or actresses coming out saying that, you know, he did this to me too, they could be just as much as fault because they accepted the advance or they accepted the situation. Wait, oh, hold, on, hold, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. You're, you're saying... to make it right or wrong... On, on when you, when you say just as just as much at fault, just as much as fault at, as as who? I mean, there, um, no, no one's as uh, Weinstein is in a class by himself here in terms of fault. I understand and, that. Right, okay, so I'm, I'm I'm missing. I'm trying to follow you here, Scott. But you're, you're saying just as much as fault as who? Um, what? Um, Weinstein. You know, if you well, no, but I just I just said that Weinstein's in a class by himself when it comes to fault. So, I understand that. Okay, so but so if, we you're, you're saying we disagree on this point? No, if he is in a class by himself, but for example, uh, in my career, if I take money to break the law, then I'm as just as fault as the person that offered me the money. Okay, right. but I, th- I think you're misconstruing how these circumstances play out, right? If you're, and, and I'm also not clear. Are you referring to like a, uh, a a a Ben Affleck who's accused of being somebody who has profited off of his relationship to Weinstein and uh, was unwilling uh, to step forward, or are you talking about women who accept the casting couch advance? Because in some cases, these are women who, if they don't accept, 
they're being coerced because they're worried their career will be destroyed. They won't have income. They won't be able to feed themselves. They won't have a livelihood. Or, or maybe not even that. Maybe this started much earlier, you know, and they're not, um, if, if you, say a woman comes into the business, right? And she just started and she accepts that payment for whatever he may offer. She is just as much as fault. And that is her blame and not just, his. She is not just no. as much. Okay, so this you keep saying this, and I'm, I'm telling you that I, I, I strongly disagree with this analysis. She is not just okay. as much at fault. She may have uh, made an unfortunate choice to advance her career, okay. but you keep it, this is not. It's not. Hey, uh, the, the way that the the circumstances we're talking about, Scott. Uh, these circumstances that we're talking about are not people who are approaching Harvey Weinstein and saying, hey, Harvey, I'll, I'll do something for you if you do something for me. He is setting up meetings in hotel rooms with young women and uh, saying, you know, you better do this or else. This is so this is not collusion, which I think is what Scott was suggesting or what, what he's trying to get at. Uh, and, and forget about the cases, I mean, or put aside, not forget, but put aside for a moment the cases described in The New Yorker, which were just criminal in nature. But I'm talking about some of the other ones, some of the other ones that have come up. It's not collusion, it's coercion, meaning it's not a, a woman wants to work with Harvey Weinstein to advance her career and she's doing for him and he's doing for her. It's Harvey Weinstein sets it up. And makes them an offer in the sort of godfather sense they can refuse, right? You, you better do this or else. So those who are advancing their careers because of that, I, you can't hold that against them. I think they're haunted by that. Um, I, I, but there's the, there are the other. When I'm talking about enablers and, uh, and those who benefited and, and criticized them, I'm talking about the... And, you know, the, the names are all out there now. But, you know, people are talking about Matt Damon, Ben Affleck. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, who, who else? I'm trying to think, Amy, who else has been named for some of the actors that were? Oh, uh, Lindsay, we've got a clip, actually, of Lindsay Lohan, right? I mean, she it, it, she, it, she deleted it, right? But here, play, go ahead, play. Hi. I feel very bad for Harvey Weinstein right now. I don't think it's right what's going on. Uh, I think Georgina needs to take a stand and be there for her husband. So there's Lindsay Lohan, who, look, has had plenty of, I'm not that up on the page six gossip stuff, but I know enough to know Lindsay Lohan's had a, a rough go for a while in a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of ways. Um, so here's somebody who is standing up for Weinstein with all this information. She deleted it, so clearly she knows. that You, you don't want to be the person standing up for Weinstein right now. And she's in that category. I would put her, I don't know her, but I'm just analyzing this from the outside, uh, I would put her in that category of someone who doesn't want to believe that her career was helped along by a monster. She doesn't want to believe that. Another important note here, that when you look at his, oh, I've done some bad things, but I'm going to go after the NRA. And you, I, I didn't mention this on the show, but he also sent out a kind of a desperate entreaty for help to other executives. And I, I think it was people in the Weinstein Company, which is literally changing its name. And there's a lot of jokes on Twitter right now about how, you know, what the name change is going to be. You know, not disgusting 
perverted predator incorporated. I mean, there's a lot of that out there right now. Um, but you know, this is Harvey Weinstein coming out saying this stuff initially about how he's going to go after the NRA, and he thought he was going to he thought he was going to be able to uh, to beat this. That gives you a sense of how disconnected. Uh, well, actually, there's another way to look at this, which is he beat it. He beat it thus far, Buck. He beat it every other time, and he did. He made it go away. You know, there are a lot of people who should be losing some sleep who wrote uh, nasty articles about women that said something about Harvey Weinstein who were part of the smear machine. But also, we can draw very direct parallels between that activity of going to the media to do the dirty work of a powerful person against women who are victims. Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, that whole era as well, and all the all the accusers against him. This is why they're this is why when Hillary Clinton stands up and says women have a right to be believed and all that, it's just posturing. It's just grandstanding. And this is why feminism is unfortunately a sick, unfunny joke in this country on the left. It's just a, an excuse for uh look, feminism is often just an excuse for excuses and man-hating and a lot of really destructive policies and behavior. Leftist feminism is not a good thing. It is not about it's not about equality, it is about separating people and and creating false narratives of, of oppression and, you know, I mean, this is feminism has, has gotten so intertwined with being anti-family, anti-marriage and pro-abortion. That's really what feminism has become in this country. Uh, which is Deeply unfortunate, but that's what it is. But it's also full of hypocrites. It's just used as a weapon against conservatives, against Christians. That's what feminism has turned into. And that's why Hillary Clinton and all the rest of them are, are so, it's so blatant, it's so obvious that they are using it as a political weapon and not for any moral or righteous purpose. They are self-righteous, but they are not righteous. I should note that this just broke on the... Uh, Hat tip Drudge Report for putting this up. Exclusive. This is from the Daily Mail. Trump's Justice Department moves on Harvey Weinstein and orders FBI to open probe over fears he will, quote, do a Polanski. Uh, the FBI has opened an investigation to Harvey Weinstein for alleged sex crimes. You have three women have come forward claiming the producer forced himself on them sexually. Uh, wow. Okay. So now we've got a... Uh, We've got a possible criminal case being looked into here. Uh, assuming this, look, it's the Daily Mail, but the Daily Mail is a huge site and does a lot of does a lot of reporting. I know they also have plenty of you know, photos of Kim Kardashian up, but they they do a lot of traffic and uh, they have real reporters. Uh, it also mentions here that you know Roman Polanski, who uh, pled guilty to having sex with a 13 year old girl in 1978. He has he fled the U.S. and is still celebrated by many people in Hollywood. They're still okay with Roman Polanski. And I, I've one more thing, and I'm, I'm sorry, I, I've done a little more today of the Weinstein discussion than I intended to. We just so you know, we are going to get into some expert uh, discussion and analysis of uh, wildfires and what's going on in California because it's, it's devastating. I mean, you're vast uh, amounts of acreage. Homes destroyed, people losing their lives in California right now. Wildfires are really scary. When you, I don't know much about them. I've been learning more 
and and we will have some folks on to talk to us about that coming up here and also tell you about this story that ties in our Lepanto discussion from last weekend. So I'm going to leave the Harvey Weinstein stuff behind here in just a moment. Um, in fact, you know what, I will... Oh, well, I, forget, I, I lost my train of thought there for a moment. But Oh, yes, one more thing. There have been whispers. Not even whispers, that's not even fair to say. There have been some stories, my friends. Uh, about, I was right yesterday when I said Epstein. Epstein is the billionaire pedophile, convicted pedophile, who Bill Clinton used to fly around on his private jet. And this guy was a pedophile, and there was all, I mean, th- th- that is a story the media has never wanted to touch. And yet it's out there. The facts are there. And there's pedophile island, right? I mean, there was all this, and they didn't want to touch this going into And he was a friend, a personal friend of Bill Clinton. I think he was guilty, found guilty of not just being a pedophile, but also paying an underage girl to have sex with him. Uh, there have been stories for a while that in Hollywood, uh, there are... Uh, predators who are going after underage, uh, underage you know, people, actors, actresses. And you've heard these stories. They've, they've been talked about and then they disappear very quickly. They've been talked about and then they disappear very quickly. Uh, given what we have found out about Weinstein and how it exposes the suppression of information that the Democrat media complex will engage in, I have to say that there is a, we have we we need to have a real look back at any of this reporting that was out there about very high level. And uh, I will not name names because this is not verified, but very high level Hollywood executives who have been, uh, if not reported, at least rumored to have been engaged in uh, serial pedophile activity. I, I don't think we can just discount that. And I think that we a lot of people in the media were way too quick to just turn the other way on that. Uh, given what we saw going on, with, and look, Weinstein, so far, it's we haven't seen that specific allegation. At a, that has not been out there with Weinstein, to be fair to the case. But there are other instances of individuals in Hollywood that people have said uh, there's there's pedophile stuff going on there, and that... I, I think you have to look at that now in light of what we in light of how dishonest the media is and what it will and will not try to cover when it comes to Hollywood. Uh, this this requires a second look. Um, and, and I will we'll keep an eye on that here as it goes forward. So I think people are going are starting to say, you know what? Eh, this this is not this is not OK that uh, the media was turning a blind eye to this and it would be you know, horrific beyond words. If, in fact, the media was covering up for uh, pedophile activity in Hollywood and look at what look at what Weinstein was doing. How far a leap is it really that somebody else, some other producer was engaged in criminal activity of, of that kind? So I just wanted to note that that's that's floating around there. And I that would it would not surprise me if there was a major story that broke on that. In the next three to six months, it might not be right away, but just remember I said it. I I wouldn't be surprised. Some big people in Hollywood involved. Um, All right. We got to hit a break. We'll talk about uh, some other stuff, including wildfires in California and much more. So uh, stay with me. All right, team. uh, Welcome back to the Freedom Hunt. Um, I want to uh, get to a call here. We got Vicky in West Virginia on WWVA. Hey, Vicky. 
my buck. I am so tired of hearing about this sex thing. Not not you. Just as everybody's in an uproar. Well, it's been a joke in Hollywood for a long, long time. Everybody knew about it. And to me, these women, they, they saw the price of fame. They decided to take it. And now they want to complain about it. I'm sorry. This well, wait, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on a second, Vicky. Hold on a second. A, a lot of these women are just victims who didn't, who who didn't accept this uh, this proposition or whatever you want. I mean, look, there's a lot of different cases. In some, it was an aggressive advance. In some, there are allegations of rape. So, you know, it's not clear. You know, we got to look at each specific case. But a lot of these women were just straight up victims. They didn't profit from this at all. Well, that that might be true. That I mean, might I'll, be true, but I'm talking I, that about is all the these allegation coming out. Okay. All these actresses coming out and saying stuff. They all knew. I mean, everybody in Hollywood knew. But you do you do and understand, they, they Vicky? That I mean, not everybody in Hollywood uh, in Hollywood knew, right? I mean, a lot of people knew. Uh, but also, I think. Um, well, they're trying to bring. Uh, I'll get to this in a second. Now they're trying to bring conservatives in this as well. By the way. Uh, but, you know, Vicky, it's important to keep in mind that that Weinstein was not this is not just a producer. Right. You, you you get that. This is a guy with a lot of he's a very powerful individual with a lot of ties. Right. To, this is a public right. interest story. It's not just like some guy no one's ever heard of or cares about. OK. All right. Fair um, enough. Thank you, Vicky. Um, so, oh, let me uh, get to Johnny. Uh, Johnny in Mississippi on WBV. Hey, Johnny. Oh, we're too early on that one. My bad. Sorry. I thought I thought we had Johnny up. All right. Um, we had. I was going to tell you about the Lepanto thing, but that might actually. I, I think I can do that. Yes, I can. Let's do that. This is a total total switch here. But since I mentioned to you recently the uh, Battle of Lepanto. And uh, and how it was a uh, important, a pivotal moment in the history of the fight between uh, Cross and Crescent, Islam and uh, Christianity, the uh, expansion of the Ottoman Caliphate. Remember, we talked about this last week. And October 7th is the commemoration of the Battle of Lepanto, which was a feast day in the Catholic Church, we often Forget this now. It was a feast of Our Lady of Victory, and now it's Our Lady of the Rosary. And because people during the Battle of Lepanto, when you had this massive armada of the Ottoman Empire facing off against the what was called the Holy League of Christian forces from different states and countries coming together uh, to fight against the, the Ottomans. And it was the, the Rosary was they they said that they won at the time. The thought was they won because of the rosary. So the polls, go over to Poland for a second here. Here's here's a story from the Associated Press. Polish Catholics held rosaries and prayed together Saturday along the country's uh, 3,500-kilometer border, appealing to the Virgin Mary and God for salvation for Poland and the world in a national event that some felt had anti-Muslim overtones. The unusual Rosary to the Borders event was organized by lay Catholics, but was also endorsed by Polish church authorities, with 320 churches from 22 dioceses taking part. The prayers took place from the Baltic Sea coast in the north to the mountains along Poland's southern borders with the Czech Republic and Slovakia, 
and all along the border of this country of 38 million, where more than 90 percent declare themselves Roman Catholics. Organizers say the prayers at some 4,000 locations commemorated the centenary of the apparitions of Fatima when three shepherd children in Portugal said the Virgin Mary appeared to them. But the event also commemorated the huge 16th century naval battle of Lepanto when a Christian alliance acting on the wishes of the Pope defeated uh, Ottoman Empire forces on the Ionian Sea, quote, thus saving Europe from Islamization. All right, end quote. So that's from the Associated Press. Interesting point here is that just holding a commemoration of Lepanto or praying the rosary at the borders in Poland because of the association with Lepanto was considered by the international press to make it Islamophobic, that this was a case of Islamophobia. So uh, I just thought that was interesting, um, that that that's the way that they would go with this. And in Poland, they still remember. In Poland, they still commemorate October 7th. You may have seen the reports, and uh, the news continues to be really, uh, really bad, really disconcerting from California. Uh, Firefighters, this is from CNN just 15 minutes ago, firefighters battling deadly blazes in northern California Faced a daunting challenge Wednesday, winds picked back up, threatening to spread wildfires that have already killed 21 people, destroyed hundreds of buildings, and forced thousands of evacuations. Uh, most of the fires were ignited Sunday, driven by winds of up to 79 miles per hour in dry conditions. More than 20,000 people have been ordered to evacuate as of Wednesday. Uh, what causes these wildfires? Uh, what's the history of them in this country, and what can we do to combat them? These are all things that I want to know. We have some, uh, somebody on the line who can address that for us. Don Falk joins now. He's associate professor at the University of Arizona, and he researches uh, fire history and ecology. Don, thank you so much for your time. Happy to be here. Don, please put into context, I mean, from based on, on wildfires uh, that we've had in this country in the past, how bad is what's going on in California right now? This is pretty extreme, and it represents the nexus of fire weather, fuels, and land use. And I think we need to understand all of those if we're going to understand why this incident has been so extreme. Well, t- tell us what, what has caused this to be as bad as it is. Okay, well, let's start with the weather side of it. Obviously, fire season is when conditions are hot, dry, windy, and low uh, humidity. Those are the conditions that promote combustion. And uh, in the state of California, this time of year, that's not unusual to have those conditions. We are seeing an acceleration of those conditions as climate change progressive. Fire seasons are getting longer. They're getting more extreme. The winds are getting higher. The temperatures are getting higher. The temperature signal is especially strong. And so we're very, very concerned that what we're seeing now may be a harbinger of future conditions as temperatures rise due to global warming. But that's a seasonal occurrence in California all the time. It's just this year, it seems to be especially strong. Remember also, California had has had some very wet conditions. There's been a lot of productivity, and productivity for fire means fuel. Fuel is mostly vegetation, and you can think of fuel as just a package of energy waiting to be released. It's been created by the process of photosynthesis, where plants capture the energy of the sun and water and nutrients and build biomass. When a fire comes along, all that energy that was encapsulated or embodied in that 
living vegetation is released not over the years or decades or even centuries that it may take to accumulate it, but in a matter of minutes. So that it's an explosive release of uh, energy. Okay. Interesting thing Go ahead, about Don. these fires, of course, is that they're, build, they're burning in a combination of structures and vegetation, right? And if you look at the pictures from the Santa Rosa fire, you can see that it was the buildings that were carrying the fire in a lot of cases. And that's because buildings, again, if you think of them from a fire perspective, they're very concentrated pools of energy ready to combust. Do we know what, what started the initial, what was the uh, ignition point of these fires in California that are, are, are still ongoing, right? I mean, these are threatening to continue to spread. You've got big winds come, uh, kicking up. This is uh, very much uh, a problem that still has to be addressed. Right. I don't think that the uh, source of this particular fire, the one in Santa Rosa, has been ascertained yet. There are about a dozen major fires burning in California this at this time. And of course, that's not completely unusual. Mostly we associate those fires with Southern California, Orange County and Anaheim County and San Diego County, where the Santa Ana winds kick up at this time of year. It's been a long, hot, dry Mediterranean summer. So the fuel moisture is very, very low. And nobody is really terribly surprised, honestly, when we have a big chaparral fire in Southern California, that system is designed to, uh, I mean, it's evolved to burn that way. And it's certainly not a surprise. These fires are a little farther north than we would expect for this kind of behavior. Although I'm sure many of your listeners remember the Great Oakland Fire um, that burned uh, in a similar fashion. What are the, and we're speaking to Don Falk, who's a professor at uh, University of Arizona who researches uh, fire history and ecology. Don, so we've got major efforts to try to contain and, and put out these fires what are those processes like? I mean, what are the things that they can do and, and what are the key indicators for whether or not they can get a fire under control? Right. Well, quite honestly, any firefighter will tell you that there's a limit to what they can do when fires are burning under extreme conditions. The amount of energy being released in a wildfire of this kind um, is equivalent to the atomic bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima during the Second World War. It's a massive amount of energy. We've actually done these calculations. It's a massive amount of energy being released all at once. So obviously with an incident like that, you're not going to get stand right up close to it and spray your hose on and put it out. In these cases, firefighters need to use what's called indirect attack. That is, you back away from the beast, you try to evaluate where it's going, where your best chance is to catch it, and usually catching it means clearing a a strip where the fuels are not going to be present, possibly putting some retardant, which may, under some cases, slow down the the spread of the fire. But you've got to be um, well away back from the direct line. That's indirect attack, and that's where you have to Yeah, do. How, how far can the heat from a major fire like this travel beyond the flames? I, I think that there's a perception that if you, look, as, as a layperson, not knowing anything about forest fires or, or wildfires, you know, as long as you stay... Uh, you're, you're not caught in the actual flames, the heat isn't a problem. But, I mean, how far does the heat actually... Because I, I read something about how the uh, windshields of cars were melted. Right. So there's and not, the not by direct then, flames. Go ahead. Yeah, there's, so there's the heat, and then there's the uh, flaming material itself. So fires put out several different kinds of heat. There's convection, which is just the roiling masses of air. These create the huge smoke plumes that we often see over big... Um, fires. Uh, there's conduction, which carries through 
solid objects. But the main kind of heat that really comes out of these fires is radiation. It's electromagnetic radiation, and that is very, very intense. Think about the last time you were standing next to a campfire, and, you know, when the campfire is really roaring, you don't want to be five or even ten feet away from the fire. You want to be well back. So imagine now the amount of energy coming out of uh, combustion with an entire wall of flame two to 300 feet high. You want to be back uh, many hundreds of meters from that. The other thing about the distance is that we do kind of think of this fire as spreading contiguously like a wave sort of moving forward, like a wave front moving forward. But big fires don't actually spread only by that process. They also do what's called spotting. And spotting is when the, these huge uh, convective wind columns, they can lift entire trees out of the ground, branches and trees, and throw this flaming material many kilometers ahead of the flaming front. So you may think that you're facing the fire as a firefighter. You're looking at it. It's in front of you. And meanwhile, the fire is sending flaming material behind you one or two kilometers and all of a sudden you discover that you've got a fire behind you and you're trapped. So this spotting uh, process is one of the main ways that fires, when they move very quickly, when they spread very quickly, they actually can spread over whole landscapes because of this process. How quickly, based on, on the wind, have we measured a major fire moving you know, with, without... I mean, you're talking about the, essentially an, an ember from a forest fire, right? Although it's, I guess, can be a lot of embers, but moving and starting yeah. a separate fire, the actual main yeah. body of the flames uh, itself, how quickly can that move? Yeah, so the, it's a very good point. Wind is a major factor in fires of this kind. These are what's called wind-driven events. So fires have a certain rate of spread based on the topography, that is the slope and the fuels and the wind and a few other factors. Wind can push a fire very, very quickly, 40, 50, 60 miles an hour. But the other factor that happens is when these big fires get going, they actually create their own weather. They create a, a, a firestorm, a convective plume that can rise thousands of feet into the air, many thousands of feet into the air. And when that happens, never mind the meteorological winds that are blowing around the area, that fire is making its own winds. And these can be firestorm scale winds. And again, once you get into that kind of situation, the only thing that firefighters are concerned about is keeping their crew safe. They're not going to be putting that fire out. They're not going to be saving anybody's house under those conditions. You're just trying not to die. All right. Don Falk, Associate Professor at the University of Arizona. Uh, thank you so much, sir, for joining us. We appreciate your expertise. Good luck, and we'll be watching the situation. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. Uh, man, that's see, fire stuff is... Uh, there's a movie coming out, and we're going to be addressing that in a little bit about firefighting in uh, firefighting against these uh, forest fires and wildfires. Um, we'll get to that though in just a few minutes. Uh, Johnny on WBUV Mississippi. Hey, Johnny. Johnny, is he gone or am I? Am I... Oh, I guess he's not there. All right, man. We we thought we were going to hang out and talk a little bit, but I I think you, you know, the takeout food has arrived or something. You're not there anymore. Uh, one thing, you know, I really appreciate it. I guess the expertise. I think it's fascinating. So we're trying. I didn't know, and this is on me. I, I didn't think beforehand of. Well, we're talking to somebody who's an expert in forest fires. Are, are is this going to somehow tie into climate change? 
And sure enough, or he said global warming, actually. Sure enough, we hear about global warming. I, I think that this is uh, now a situation where if you work in the natural sciences, if you work, you know, not as opposed to the social sciences, uh, in any capacity at all, you have to, and, and you want to uh, be tenured or you want to get grant money or whatever, you just have to say this stuff. I think it's the price of admission now, which is a shame, but that's the sense that I get. Cause like, this is, I mean, really we're global war. Anyway, look, he, he had some very interesting things to say. He knows a lot more about fires than I do. So that's good. But I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't expecting global warming to come into the discussion. I should have in retrospect, cause you can't, I, I think we're at a point now where you could be talking about the, uh, you know, m- mating patterns of uh, the Alaskan salmon from, August until October, and you'd hear from a you'd hear from a marine biologist about global warming. I, I just don't think there's any way around that. Now. I, I don't think that uh, you'll you'll escape this. So anyway, that we we can get it. We can leave that for now. I thought it was an interesting discussion though, because I don't know much about how these fires work, and it's a lot more complicated than show up, point some water cannons at it, and try to just put it out. That is not how it functions. Uh, we, I want I think I'll probably mention the Eminem rap from last night about Trump. I meant to get to that before and I kind of skipped over it, but we'll revisit that for a moment. And then I believe we will be joined by a special guest. We have Pat McCarty uh, joining us at the top of the next hour. He is a, uh, he is an individual who's part of the Granite Mountain Hotshots who were an elite group of firefighters in Prescott, Arizona. He left the unit before the summer of 2013, and there is a, a movie coming out about the about what happened to uh, the hot shots, the Granite Mountain hot shots. I think, is it out already, Amy? Do we, it is out already, yeah, it ha- and it has Josh Brolin playing the lead, so we should have uh, Pat McCarty joining to talk to us about what it's like. We had a scientist to talk to us about the fires and the science of, of fires, and we've got these Massive wildfires going on in California right now. Uh, we'll have somebody who tells us what it's like to actually stare one of these things down. Um, and we'll do that when we come back. So stay with me. I was going to talk about this uh, M&M rap, but you know what? I, I actually want to I want to get into something else for a second here. The Boy Scouts of America is going to start accepting girls? Why? It's called the Boy Scouts. I, I, don't, I don't even... I mean, I get, I know this is like we're erasing gender now in society and social justice and all that, but, but really? Here's the news from the New York Times. The Boy Scouts of America announced plans on Wednesday to accept girls, marking a historic shift for the century old organization. The group cited the desire to nurture female leaders as a reason for the decision pitting it against the Girl Scouts of the USA, which operates under a similar mission. We strive to bring what our organization does best, developing characters, a character and leadership for young people to as many families and youth as possible as we help shape the next generation of leaders. Why? I don't understand. Oh, my gosh. The decision comes nearly two months after the organization was harshly criticized by the president of the Girl Scouts, for what she said was a covert campaign to recruit girls. Uh, okay, I I, I got to like look into. I, I'm not understanding the the what's going on here um, about why how this all happened. But this just seems to me to be 
quite strange because the organization is called the Boy Scouts. So now you don't, they're not, so is it just now the Scouts? And is the problem any sex segregated activity of, of any kind now? I, I'm, it's not fair to girls that they don't have this. I mean, the Girl Scouts is a thing. This is what I don't understand. If you want, right? The girls, there's Girl Scouts, there's Boy Scouts. But now the Boy Scouts are going to be taking Girl Scouts? I'm just seeing this now. I didn't I didn't plan to talk about this, so I'm working through this a little bit and all I can think is what? This just this just doesn't make this doesn't make any sense. Uh bowing to I mean usually I see the the politically correct rationale for this stuff right away and I go, "Oh, okay. Well, well that's that's why they did this." But in this case, there's a Girl Scouts, there's Boy Scouts. And this isn't like a, you know, uh a transgender rights issue thing of, oh, they're Girl, Scout, they're Girl Scouts who want to be part of the Boy Scouts or something. This is just, you can't have, you can't have uh, any separation of sex. All right. I don't, I'm going to look into this more because I don't even understand what their argument is supposed to be for this. This is, this just doesn't, they, <laughs> anyway. Oh man, the world, the, we're, this, this country is just seems to be going crazy. Not, nothing really makes sense anymore. I would also note that I'm, I'm hearing, this may be a separate issue, but I'm hearing now, even from conservatives, it has become when referring to Chelsea Manning. That's when this comes up in, in whether it's a news broadcast or in writing. Conservatives all refer to Chelsea Manning from what I see as she. And I'm starting to think, uh, OK, so is that now the way this is supposed to go? Because uh, it looks to me like people are abandoning, abandoning that disagreement pretty rapidly and i think there was a law that just got passed in california that that said that using the wrong wrong pronoun could be a form of discrimination i think i saw that on uh, making the rounds on social media i'd have to dig into that some more but i am seeing people now refer to chelsea manning as a she and i just it's not to be disrespectful or mean or anything it's chelsea manning is a he it's a guy i i don't Ugh. I, I call I call Chelsea Manning Chelsea Manning. You can change your name. You can't change your gender. I've been through this a million times. But I think this is a debate that I'm starting to sense conservatives are backing away from and just saying, okay, we're going to go along with it. Anyway, this I, I, I switched this up. I was going to get it. I mean, the Eminem rap, I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'll play it in the next break. It's just, yeah, yeah, Trump is the worst. And if you like Trump, I don't want you supporting me. This is what Eminem was saying at BET. I think he's got an album coming out. He said that uh, Trump's a, quote, a kamikaze that'll probably cause a nuclear holocaust. End quote. This is, uh, this is art these days, I, I suppose. Um, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Uh, I think we'll have our guest joining us here in a few minutes. And then I will be talking to you a little bit about immigration in the next hour. Welcome back, team. I was just talking to you about... Uh, everything going on in California right now. And I have an update here on 17 uh, deaths so far in these wildfires, uh, hundreds injured, uh, over 200 missing persons as of right now, 122,000 acres burned. And the estimate so far is $65 billion of property damage. This, according to uh, Ian Bremer of Eurasia Group, a risk consultancy. What is it like to face one of these massive infernos? We have Pat McCarty joining us now. Now, Pat was a member of the Granite Mountain 
Hot Shots. Uh, they were an elite group of wildland fi- uh, firefighters in Prescott, Arizona. He left the unit before the summer of 2013, and he's going to tell us uh, why that is such a uh, – the dates here are so important to the story. Pat, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, first, if you would, please tell us, because uh, there's there's a movie out right now about this. Um, tell us uh, the story of the unit you were a part of, the Granite Mountain Hotshots. Yeah, so uh, the movie is Only the Brave, and it's going to come out on October 20th. But it follows the storyline of the Granite Mountain Hotshots. Um, Granite Mountain Hotshots was based out of Prescott, Arizona from... 2005 till uh till the tragic death in 2013 and uh they were an elite group of of men and they they had one goal to become a hotshot crew uh they started the process it was over many many years uh obviously the film is a little bit condensed on that but uh it's a condensed version of their journey uh to become hotshots and also uh everything that they go to through internally and externally with their families uh, it's a, a very, very heroic movie, and it's a true tribute to all wildland firefighters. Now, what what is it like? I mean, this I think for those listening, we, we just had a uh, a professor on to give us an academic explanation for just how dangerous these fires are, how big they are, how quickly they can spread. Uh, when you are engaged in trying to contain one of these things and trying to defeat one of these fires, what do you have to face? What goes through your mind? I mean, bring us as, as close to this reality of, of fighting these fires as you can. Well, you know, to be honest with you, it's kind of a surreal world. Um, you know, all these firefighters and all these uh, hot shots, they go through extensive amounts of training. And all you can really do when you're put in those situations is try to rely on your training because each and every day it's a different perspective. It's a different issue. There's always something new um, with the fire, the way it behaves, or um, what you're seeing, the country that you're in, it's always different. And then to add on to that, you're always physically and mentally exhausted. Um, you know, hot shots, they go into the deepest, darkest, uh, steepest, roughest country that uh, our nation has to offer, and sometimes it's the very most remote. And these guys go in there with a smile on their face, and they solve whatever problem that fire's going to throw at them. I mean, ultimately, it's it's guys on the ground that have to do this work, right? There's not. I think the the general conception, and maybe I'm I'm speaking mostly for myself here, is just that well, there there has to be more that can be done when a fire is threatening an entire town, threatening to blaze through an entire city. There's more that, than just calling on groups of firefighters on foot, right? There has to be some, uh, and I, I know they can call in uh, planes to to drop. Uh, Water and and I think they also will drop what anti inflam uh, anti flame um, uh, anti flame yeah, material it's, it's on blurry, it. But... You know, and it, it's basically a, a flame retardant. But uh, you know, all, speaking for the helicopters, that um, all that stuff is only good for so long. Eventually, that water is going to dry up, and, and that those flaming fronts will burn through it. Um, it'll creep through it. It'll smolder through it. So, what puts these fires out, and what really does it, is boots on the ground. The guys on the ground swinging the tools. Um, you know, I wish we could just go in there and use helicopters and, and airplanes to take care of it. It'd be a lot easier, but uh, that's just not the world we live in. So, but what do you do, Pat, when you are when you're when you're with a, a unit like the Granite Mountain Hotshots, and there's a fire that's threatening threatening homes and threatening lives? Walk us through the the the, the order of battle, if you will. Like, what what do you establish? What the wind trajectory is, and then you set up a 
a perimeter? I mean, how do you go about actually slowing this thing down and trying to just stop it? Yeah, you know what? There's a whole, whole, whole bunch that goes into it, and I wish we had more time for that. Um, but, you, yes, it's a scientific approach. Uh, it's a very uh, topographical approach. You know, you're going to want to make sure that you're uh, in a good good position to make attack on the fire, obviously. Um, you don't want to be above the fire unless you absolutely have to be putting line in, and, and then we have rules and checklists we have to go through with that. We pay very close attention to the weather. Um you know, we're watching the humidity uh, on the half hour to the hour, you know, down to five minutes if we need to. Um, it's a, an amazing approach, and it takes a great group of people. Uh, you'll see a ton of firefighters out there, and they all have a very specific job, and, you know, they take great pride in that. Now, Pat, if you would tell us, I mean, I, I, the people may still go out and, and see the movie, but I, it, is, it is based on the true story of the Granite Mountain Hotshots uh, would you would you walk us through what happened in 2013? Yes. Yeah, so uh, the movie is based on a true story of the Grand Mountain Hotshots, and it is very true to life. Um, I would say a couple things. This is the most authentic uh, movie that the audience will ever see as far as wildland firefighters go. Um, it's an amazing film. Um, and tragically, uh, the guys pass away. You know, 19 guys pass away, and, and one man does survive. Um it's it's a great film. You really get to know the guys. You get to know who they were before this happened. And, uh, you know, I really encourage the audience to go out there and, and watch it and really try to learn what these guys do um, because there's thousands of them that are still doing it every day. All right. Pat McCarty, of the, uh, formerly of the Granite Mountain Hotshots, really appreciate you joining us. Thank you for what you, uh, what you do, and uh, we'll spread the word about the movie. Thank you very much. All right, team. Well, there you have it. Uh, we've we've now, you know, this is a. I don't think I've ever talked about uh, wildfires before on radio, and so I've been trying to learn more about them. But the the statistics are just staggering for uh, how much damage is being done. I mean, one hundred and two twenty one hundred and twenty two thousand acres. That is a lot of land. This is one of the biggest fire emergencies in the history of the state of California. Um, so. If you have any thoughts on that, uh, please do call in. I should also note as as a follow-up to yesterday on the Vegas response, right, the response from law enforcement in the Vegas shooting, uh, I got messages on that. Um, I will try to, if I can remember, I'll try to get some of them in Team Buck Speaks later in the show. I had law, members of uh, Team Buck, whether they consider themselves members or not, if they listen to the show, I like to think of them as members. Uh, they wrote to me with, with their thoughts on it and – uh, we, we did invite a SWAT expert that we had scheduled to have on the show before to come back and talk to us about this, but it, it seems like the uh, there there's still some details that we need to find out about what happened in the critical moments, uh, critical minutes between the first gunfire at the security guard and then the actual major attack on the civilians, so the mass ca- mass casualty shooting incident. So there's more details we need to find out about it, but and we will try to get somebody on to talk about the response. And I was reading as well about Pulse nightclub, and interesting because there there are some who say that the police at the Pulse nightclub played it the, exactly the way they had to under the circumstances. There are some who are longtime SWAT people said that no, no, that they 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 should reevaluate some of the decisions that were made, some of the tactical decisions that were made uh, at the scene of the Pulse nightclub shooting. And I, I didn't know this. I learned this uh, from doing some research in the last few days. 
that they changed the approach, that SWAT had to change the approach to mass shooter incidents after Columbine back in, uh, what, 1999, because the initial uh, the, the initial strategy approach to this was that you showed up once you had SWAT there. They showed up and they would set up a perimeter and then seek to you know, establish uh, communication and, and perhaps negotiate. And after Columbine, they had they had to change that uh, they had to change that approach. Uh, so we will get somebody on with uh, more expertise in that in the future. Because look, the Las Vegas we still don't have a motive for the Las Vegas shooter, and there's still um, more that we need to do to figure out exactly what happened there. Um, and and I I appreciate all the messages and notes that I got about that part of the the show and the discussion front. All right. Um, as I like to say, hard turn here for a moment before I go into the break and we'll talk about immigration. We can play the Eminem rap, right? I mean, we're allowed. We're allowed. So this is the, the hard turn. To the I wanted to play it. Play the Eminem rap for a second. That's an awfully hot coffee pot. Should I drop it on Donald Trump? Probably not, but that's all I got. But we better give Obama props, because what we got in office now's a kamikaze that'll probably cause a nuclear holocaust. Look, I, I don't, I don't get it, and I don't pretend to be some kind of music critic. Uh, although I guess technically I'm a radio host, so I, I kind of am a critic of everything in a sense. Uh, but I, I don't really understand the. There was so much last night. It was like my my social media timeline was just full of. Oh my gosh, did you see what you know Eminem did? Uh, is he is he the artist for? Is he formerly known as Slim Shady, or do people still call him Slim Shady? He doesn't really. Yeah, he, so he's the artist formerly known as Slim Slim Shady. Uh, doesn't really. Uh, Dramos just told me he doesn't really uh, doesn't really go by that anymore. I guess he's uh, Marshall Mathers, right? That's his actual his actual name, Marshall Mathers. So he has an album coming out too. So maybe this is a, it's great it's great publicity, right? He gets and and I suppose he figures that the people that like his music won't care if they voted for Trump that he was explicitly insulting them uh, by saying that he doesn't want if you support Trump he doesn't like you. This is a largely a business decision, I suppose. But yeah, I don't know. I, I I used to listen to a lot of a lot of what we called rap music in the '90s. Now it is hip hop music. Uh, I've never really understood the uh, appeal that Eminem seems to hold for a lot of people. But Eight Mile was actually a pretty good movie. I thought for what it was, Eight Mile was a pretty good movie. That's uh, that's when you know you've you've hit the big time when you get to play yourself in the movie about your life that makes you a hero. You know, that's uh, there have been others who have done that too. But that is certainly a thing that only a few uh, get the opportunity for. All right. I'm going to talk to you about immigration because I think there was an interesting uh, indicator of what's to come on immigration going forward. Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer and Donald Trump. So that will be coming up here in a few minutes. And I'm hoping that tomorrow we'll get to the latest. I wrote on the uh, Hill.com today about how ISIS is defeated, essentially. And no one's really talking about it because the defeat doesn't feel like a defeat, but ISIS has really been defeated. So that might be a deep dive worth getting into tomorrow. And I, let me know if you want us to do more on it, the Iran deal decertification. Until it gets decertified, I don't know. I feel like we've already covered a lot of that backstory. But I'm, I'm going to be looking for things tomorrow that are not Weinstein-related to talk about. That, that I will promise you, because there's been a lot of that going on. Immigration coming up, team. Stay with me. To the dreamers and those of us who fight for them, opposed by an overwhelming majority of Americans and anathema to our national values. <laughs> I love it. You know Trump is on the right track when Nancy Pelosi 
is so upset about it. Uh, I, I think this was this is great. Uh, hey, I, I when this was initially a story, I forget what it was about a month ago or so, and people were saying, "Oh, how could he do this deal with Chuck and Nancy?" And I was like, "Look, th- that wouldn't be good. I couldn't support that. I'd have to be critical of the president if that were in fact the case." But here you have Nancy. <laughs> You know, you have Nancy Pelosi, who is clearly flustered by this whole situation. And I think that that is a very good sign that the Trump administration uh, has decided they're going to play a little bit of hardball on immigration. I I think that they have realized that there's nothing that they can do with the Democrats on immigration until the American people are clear on just how much. The uh, the Democrats do not, in fact, want to be in any way, shape or form involved in uh, border security, interior enforcement, any of that. OK, so I, I think it's great. I mean, the, the list of principles that were delivered by the White House to Congress, uh, I, I've been meaning to give you the specifics. I, m- I mentioned some of them earlier in the week, but it's. Employing 10,000 additional immigration and customs enforcement officers and 1,000 lawyers for the agency. Hiring an extra 370 immigration judges and 300 federal prosecutors. Banning immigrants from bringing their extended family members to the U.S. Oh, that's right. No more chain migration, everybody. Penalizing sanctuary cities that have resisted the Trump administration's efforts to crack down on illegal immigrants. And having companies use an e-verify program to keep illegal immigrants from getting jobs. I, I feel like Stephen Miller, who is one of the few non-Beltway, non-Swamp administration officials uh, <laughs> that seems to be left, uh, he's got to be all over this. Uh, this looks like his hand at work. Um, and look, it's the president's, the president's policy, so he ultimately either gets the credit or the blame for this, But these are some of the key principles that we need to have for an immigration reform discussion. Uh, These are some of the uh, critically important things that if we're going to have any forward movement on this, unless we just want status quo, you need to establish what it is that the Republicans will insist on before any any long term deal of any kind can be done for dreamers. Look, Trump says he's a negotiator. I'm all in favor of the art of the possible, too. Never mind the art of the deal, but the you know, politics is supposed to be the art of the possible. And we will see how that is uh, put into action here with immigration, uh, because there's no way for Democrats like Pelosi and Schumer to stand in opposition to all of these different things without people, the American people starting to recognize, well, hold on a second. Why? Why do we not want more immigration judges? And why do we not want more federal prosecutors? And why should chain migration be the law of the land? That doesn't seem to make sense. We have an immigration process for the individual that comes into the country. We shouldn't have a special system of privileges for those who come into the country and everyone in their family and then their family members and their family members and that is the way that this works in practice. And so Democrats are going to they're going to just say dreamers, dreamers, dreamers. Trump, I think, can force clarity on this issue by pushing a bit 
more and saying, look, I'm willing to I'm I was talking to Chuck and Nancy and I'm willing to approach this from an open minded perspective. But you're going to have to to get to give here. And what you'll see is the Democrats can't give anything on immigration. They won't. Their base won't allow them. The only thing they'll allow is the facade of negotiations with the certainty of amnesty. Anything else is just going to get uh, is going to get the the dreamers. I mean, the Democrats invite illegals to the State of the Union address. They, they invite illegals to government functions. They hold up illegals as somehow better than the American people. They're always saying the jobs they won't do, and you know they do the jobs Americans won't do, and you know, lower crime rates than native-born Americans. It's like, well, what are they trying to say exactly? First of all, all that's just. That's just crap. Those are talking points. It's not true. It's not based on reality. But they see it as a propaganda war. Immigration is about what people believe, not what is true. That's how the Democrats are playing the game. And I think Trump will be in a position to fight on this issue, to push back and to uh, possibly get a deal done that puts some of the most important immigration changes into place. Assuming the Republican Congress goes along with them, I I'm wondering who thinks that uh, the Congress is going to get blamed versus who thinks Trump is going to get blamed if nothing happens going into the midterms. Uh, At some point, we are allowed as people to just say, you know what, as conservatives, as Republicans, as Americans, what's the point? If they're not going to get anything done, why go through all the motions of voting and raising money or sending money or whatever it is, you know, licking envelopes and stamps and all that stuff? I mean, whatever it is you're doing to help elect republicans and i know a lot of you listening do a whole heck of a lot it's gonna be pretty hard to get excited about that if there's nothing to point to after two years of a republican controlled house senate and presidency so uh, immigration is as an issue alive and well and we will see this is going to be a defining a defining issue for the trump administration good or bad hey team buck Back with you here to uh, close up shop in the Freedom Hut for uh, this session. I wanted to share with you that last night I was on the way home and I was thinking a bit about the discussion that, well, we are having and that I have been uh, pushing on everything in response uh, or everything about the response in Las Vegas from law enforcement. And I I was walking home. Well, I was in the subway and and, uh, I was on my way home and I saw an individual who, in NYPD parlance, is clearly an EDP. I mean, it was somebody who, and and I don't say this uh, as a point of ridicule, but he was a guy who looked like he hadn't, you know, shaved in many, many years, hadn't had his hair cut in many, many years, and you could smell him from a very long ways away. He was absolutely uh, filthy, and, and and it's really... It's really sad, and and I sometimes you see this in the New York City subway. In fact, occasionally there'll be someone who is uh, homeless, uh, or apparently homeless, who's on a subway car, and you'll wonder well, this is such a packed train. Why? And you'll step into the car because you'll see it first through the windows; it'll be empty. And you'll step in, and there'll be one individual in there who has such an overpowering smell from lack of access to. Uh, bathroom facilities and and showers and and just uh, in a lot of cases you're dealing with in the homeless population in New York City people who have 
uh, deep addiction and mental health issues. But I saw this individual and he was he was shouting uh, belligerently. You know, he was yelling. It wasn't really clear uh, other than some curses here and there what he was shouting. And sure enough, uh, two NYPD officers uh, came over to him and I was not trying to uh, watch the exchange beyond just being there because I had no choice. I'm trying to get out of the subway. But I, I noticed for, for a, a good few moments what was going on. And it's just, I know that's, that's law enforcement in a lot of cases. Here you have two cops who are trying to uh, reason with this individual who is clearly uh, in need of a lot of help and is very likely not a threat to anybody, but is concerning. Uh, because when you have somebody who... Uh, has all of those different characteristics put together. You have somebody who is uh, cl- clearly um, in in. Need. I mean, I don't know what else to say. I mean, it's, it's a guy who's screaming. He's filthy. He's got you know his hair is down to his shoulders. His beard is down to you know the middle of his chest, pretty much, or you know the top of his chest. And he's got clothing that's literally falling apart. And he's screaming curses at people that are trying to get get home, you know, on the subway. And it's the job of two police officers to approach this individual and deal with the situation and if this uh, if this edp emotionally disturbed person uh spits on one of them or uh, you know it, it just you know tries to stab one of them with something they they just don't know and i was seeing in that moment their role between really acting as social worker on the spot they you know you know sir you know we need you to you know can't you, they're, they're trying to get him to go to a place where maybe he could get cleaned up and get some help and you know he's causing a disturbance they have police powers if they want to because he's disturbing the peace to you know they don't want to arrest him but they also can't leave him and i just it, it's the it's a classic moment of what uh uniformed law enforcement uh, deals with and Look, uh, it's it's not a. I have a tremendous respect for it because it's a job that needs to be done, and it's a job that honestly I don't think I could do. Uh, I just it's just not something that I have in me, and so I have a tremendous amount of respect for uh, for those who can do it. You know, I, I see these guys in Hollywood, and I'm like, well, I could do that. <laughs> I could. I see what the uh, NYPD officers uh, were dealing with yesterday. I'm like, I just don't know. I don't know if I could handle that. And so I, I just want, it made me think on my way home last night, you know, it's while on the one hand, I like to strike a balance between making sure that we look at all the facts and we're uh, honest about what happens in a major news story that involves a, an important and time sensitive police response like Las Vegas. Not only are they dealing with the life or death situations of mass shootings in, in communities, you know, law enforcement dealing with this. And it could happen anywhere in any community across the country. And it does happen, unfortunately, uh, far too often shootings of all of all kinds. But also just in the day to day of law enforcement, it is those of you who uh, have had exposure to it know what I'm talking about. Those of you who have done it know a lot more than those who just have a sense of it. But it's not like it is on law and order. There's a lot of you know trying to really engage in in mediation work and conflict de-escalation and communication with the community and communication with people who 
uh, on the one hand, you have to make sure they're not threatening others or causing problems for others. On the other hand, you know, you have sympathy for them. And I, and I have sympathy for these two officers. You know, I guess these guys probably have, there's two male officers. I'm guessing they both have wives back home. Maybe one or both of them have kids back home. And, you know, they're now engaged in a situation, in, engaged in a situation where, you know, they could end up having to wrestle a, uh, clearly emotionally disturbed homeless guy who you can smell from uh, again I'm not saying it to be funny I'm saying it just to give you a description you could smell him on the different platforms so you, uh, when I was walking up the stairs I hadn't even seen this guy I said what is that and you know and it's sad it's this somebody who's really been forgotten by society and is in desperate need of help but you got the officers there and they've got to de-escalate and you know they don't know you know somebody goes from you know, somebody goes from being a uh, a person in, in need to a threat, as law enforcement knows, very quickly. And, and so they've got to, on the one hand, be the social worker. On the other hand, be guardians, you know, be uh, protecting, you know, serving and protecting at the same time. Anyway, I, I just thought it was it was an example of what what really law enforcement has to do day in and day out. And uh, just much respect, much respect for everything from dealing with domestic disputes and a uh, crazy smelly guy on the subway to, you know, SWAT and ESU response to critical mass casualty incidents. I mean, p- police has got a tough job. And uh, I, so I wanted to give this. This is another perspective uh, from the after action report. Uh, you know, it's, it's one thing to do a hot wash uh, of a major incident and look into it as an analyst with all the, with well, at least a lot of the facts uh, brought to bear, it's another thing to just understand what the, or have some appreciation for. I can't understand it having never done it, but to have a a basic appreciation and respect for the job day in and day out in, in communities all across the country, um, and and I absolutely do. And I can one day maybe I'll tell you some of my favorite stories from when I was uh, assisting NYPD guys as a terrorism expert back in the day. They had great stories. Um, but we'll get to that another time. We'll do Team Buck Speaks right after this break. Hey, team. So I, I have uh, a few uh, updates from the world of Chef Buck real quick. I've got Indian butter chicken, which I didn't know that was a dish. Apparently it is waiting for me at home, which I will let you know how that goes. A lot of spices I had to throw in there. A lot of measuring, but hopefully will be good. At one point, the uh, the recipe called for heavy cream and you know maybe i went a little extra on the heavy cream because can you really ever have too much of that uh, but i'm looking forward to seeing how that one turned out i will tell you that my pulled pork and all of your uh, tips for making the pulled pork as good as it could be it was phenomenal it's already gone i i i'm realizing now as i tell you this that over the course of uh i guess four or five days i ate two pounds of pork that seems like a lot Maybe I need to tone it down a little bit. Psych. Never going to happen. It's amazing. I was having it for breakfast. I was having it for lunch. I was having it for dinner. It was so good. It's very versatile. Very versatile pork, you know. So I wanted to uh, get into some Team Buck Speaks here because I've been getting so many uh, compelling, funny, kind, constructive criticism, all kinds of messages uh, on Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. So if you want to get in on that action, uh, we here in the Freedom Hut are looking through the Facebook messages all the time, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, and maybe you'll get on the show. Here we go. We have Matthew writing in 
In keeping with my earlier message, I wanted to let you know that I bought all three volumes of the Gulag Archipelago, which arrived on Monday. I finished volume one last night. I really wish this was mandatory reading for seniors in high school, and if not then, definitely freshmen in college. Hell, it should be mandatory reading for anyone who votes. Matthew, completely agree with you. Glad you enjoyed Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago, a, a critical work. Uh, depressing. A lot of Russian, great Russian literature is a little depressing, but very, very important nonetheless. Okay, we have Duke writing in with the following. Hey, Buck, I just finished listening to Monday's podcast. I wanted to thank you for your dissertation on pain. Over 40 years ago, I had multiple tendon tears and separations, mostly my right knee. I've been told many times I have a really cool swagger. Laugh out loud. It's a limp. Well, Duke, you're not the only one. I limp, too. And uh, I'm glad that you appreciated my discussion of chronic pain. And I know some of you probably thought that I was taking a ride in the ambulance, but... It's a it's a very once you deal with it, I'm telling you, it, it changes your outlook on a lot of things. And I've been dealing with con- consistent pain for a very long time. Steve writes in with the following. So Vegas law enforcement changed their story uh, and their timeline. Uh, what else will change, Steve? I don't know. And look, I, I do not in any way uh, impugn the. Uh, motives or integrity of any of the law enforcement officers involved in what's going on in the Vegas investigation. But there does need to be clarity and accuracy in this. And when there's not, we are allowed to ask questions. That much, I think, is fair to say. All right. A cooking tip coming in here from uh, Ken. He writes, by the way, I agree with your guest that suggests using an Instapot instead of a slow cooker. I've actually always had a concern with placing uncooked meats, especially chicken, in a container at room temperature. Instapot sears and quickly cooks and holds temp for a long time. Didn't want to rain on your slow cooker parade, shields high. Well, Ken, don't worry. My my slow cooker parade can get rained on anytime. And uh, I will look into this Instapot you are mentioning. Uh, James writes in with an Audio analysis. Okay, well, I can't really. This is an audio analysis that I can't play for you right now on air, so I'm going to have to skip over that one, James. But, James, I will listen to your audio analysis. Alex writes in with the following Thank you, Buck. I did enjoy learning about and celebrating Lepanto Day. I listened to your entire show, Shields High. Alex. Well, Alex, thank you so much. Um, I have done, in fact, a longer deep dive that was two hours long, or an hour and a half long into the Lepanto battle, the run-up to it, and even added some production effects if you're into that kind of thing. So that uh, I, I'd like to bring that back at some point. All right, Jennifer writes in with Buck. I agree with you for the most part on not having phones on at the dinner table, but keep in mind, some of us have kids at home with a babysitter and we have to remain accessible. Our oldest is 13 and sometimes watches his younger siblings while we go out to dinner. Got to keep the phones at the ready just in case things go south at home. Otherwise, completely agree with you. Yeah, Jennifer, of course, there are extenuating circumstances. You know, if I was waiting for, uh, for a big call about a, uh, a job or something, I would probably have. But the general rule, and obviously anything has to do with safety or you know, medical necessity, you can keep your phone out. But the general rule, I think, for social purposes should be that uh, folks keep their phones away whenever possible. And I'm glad you agree. 
Paul writes in with the following. California fires are a valid topic. They're getting worse every year. Clearing underbrush, controlled burns, and fire breaks have been banned in the name of environmentalism. People have suffered and millions have been spent fighting them. And you should have seen the smoke column I drove through yesterday. Not exactly a clean air event. Well, Paul, thanks for writing in on this. I I hope you found the parts of the show that we did on the uh, wildfires to be informative and and worthwhile. Um, I try to do more than just give you the headlines here. I, I, I have the time because of when the show airs to do research, and I take full advantage of that, and also to line up guests who aren't just going to regurgitate what I say. I bring guests on who either have a really interesting POV, an interesting point of view, or an expertise that will enrich the show, or that are just really funny. So those are my uh, those are my standards for what I try to do here in the Freedom Hut. John writes in, Buck, so sorry to hear about your old man pain. Big fan of your show. Um, I listen to your podcast after Rush most days, but lately yours is the first. Wanted to pass along contact info for someone that can get you back to normal and ho- hope it helps. And he gave me a New York doctor. Wow. Thank you. Thanks, John. I will take a look, and uh, maybe somebody can help me here. That would be great. I also had somebody, I'll see if I can find it, write in about how her husband is an orthopedic surgeon, and um, I'll get to that. Stay with me on that for a second. Aries writes in, Yesterday on the podcast, I learned a bit more about Columbus and the 1492 trip than I had heard before. Uh, Usually I tend to snooze through your history lessons, (laughs) but at the outset of the show, you said there would be some stuff about him I'd never heard before, and you were right. Most interesting was the fact that they were looking for a sea route because of the jihadist incursions into Spain. Well, Aries, I'm glad you enjoyed that one, and I'm glad I uh, kept you on your toes, and you know, I try to mix in the history for those who love it, but not do so much that those of you who would prefer we stay on current events feel like uh, I am going off the rails. Caleb writes in, uh, hey, Buck, what happened to the article by Gilly on colonialism, uh, the case for colonialism? I can't find it anywhere on the Internet. Well, Caleb, it was retracted. Uh, In a sense, they tried to unpublish it because it was so heretical to this essential uh, belief on the left that colonialism is responsible for whatever ills in the world you want to make it responsible for today. So. I do have a version of it. Um, I meant to post this yesterday and get it to our web team. Uh, I'm going to send that to them now, assuming that my link still works. I I think it does. I didn't take screen grabs of the article because it's like 15 pages. Uh, But I will try to post that up on bucksexton.com. Chris Tucker writes in, Buck, I really connected to your talk on chronic pain. I'm a registered nurse and also have peripheral neuropathy in my right foot due to tarsal tunnel syndrome. I have the sensation of red hot needles uh, cranked down on my toes or just a sting like a thousand hornets all in one location. I don't use opioids because I can't take them and work and they really won't work for me. I use ibuprofen and gabapentin. Many of us are out here going to work, doing our jobs and doing so in pain. I also have arthritis in my hands and wrists. We do what we have to do. Thank you. Well, Chris, thank you for writing in and uh, certainly... Uh, yeah, I, 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 I do sympathize, um, and I thank you very much for, uh, for your note. Um, I wanted to do more. We'll do more Team Buck Speaks tomorrow or Friday, maybe both. I don't know. I really like this. I like reading in 
uh, reading on air what you guys all write in. Uh, Buck Sexton, uh, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton if you would like to join the team online, so to speak. Also, BuckSexton.com slash store if you want to get some gear. Uh, already thinking about the shows for tomorrow and Friday. I think they're going to be really interesting. Uh, and if you have any thoughts or ideas, share them with me. Also, those of you on Twitter, Buck Sexton on Twitter. And I try to look at my Twitter feed during the show live as well as after hours. So shoot me your thoughts there. And until tomorrow, whether you're listening to me live or on podcasts or however, Shield Talk. <laughs>